And then we will, I know where we're going, but before we get to where we're going, no, no, Dave, Dave asked me the question I knew that was coming, um, which is, what do you mean regeneration is different from salvation? That's where we're going. So if that's not your question, first off, any blanks missed? Are there any blanks missed? I thought I hit them all, but hey. Don't send it to my mother. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, any blanks missed? Yes. Proves. Proves. Okay. Um, so, any other blanks? Any other blanks? Okay. Yes. We need a microphone. We need a microphone for the blank, for the question. Okay. Where are you at? Up your front row. Well, the front row of people. <laughs> I can yell. Okay. Well, no. We, we record this. We record this. Oh, and if you don't speak into the microphone, whoever's list the five people listening to it wonder what I'm answering. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. Question one. I mean, one point a little two. Solely, God only. Solely, S O L E L Y. Solely or only. Any other blanks? Okay. Any questions from point one? Because Dave's question is from point two. We'll get there, and I know we're going to have some time on that. I'm fine with that. It was great. Um, any questions from point one? Know that God only gives good gifts. Then with the stars and the sky and coming down from the Father of Lights, any questions in that regard? Yet, yeah, microphone. You don't have to identify. People you listening know, no, won't know who you a are. A bulletin. Oh. I didn't get. Oh, one. there you go. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Hold on a second. And then we. Oh, sorry. We need another bulletin. <laughs> okay. Ush, man, ush. Okay. Questions from point one. Any questions or thoughts from point one? So I think it's point one about everything is for the good. Do yeah. we have any, I wouldn't say it's an obligation, but is it wrong to search for what the good is? No. In fact, we have, this is, go to Philemon. We have both warrant and restraint from the Apostle Paul and Philemon. Um, so the question, we can't know what God's up to, but is it appropriate to wonder, to search, to try to figure out what he's up to? Yes and no. We have warrant and restraint in Philemon. Um, on the one hand, Paul does exactly that. On the other hand, Paul demonstrates some, I think, quite appropriate restraint. Philemon, I got to get there. Um, oh, it's after Titus. Duh. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. So, um, let's go back to verse um, 13. If you say what chapter, there's only one chapter. So Philemon 13. I would have been glad. To, so the, the context is Paul is sending... Um, Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter, and he is calling on Philemon to to receive him as a brother, to release him. 
I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own account. Now get this, 15. For this, perhaps, is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. So on the one hand, Paul is guessing at why things turned out the way they did. So is it wrong to say, hey, perhaps God is doing this? Paul's doing that. Note the inspired writer of scripture will not say it with any more certainty than perhaps. So that's the restraint. So when people say, I know what God's doing, he's judging America, or I know what God's doing, he's doing this. Paul will only say perhaps. So we have both the warrant, an example, someone's doing it here, and we see the restraint. Perhaps. You know, so I look at the way things play out and I look at how things happen and say, you know what? Maybe that happened so that would happen. Maybe God was getting me ready for this. You're doing what Paul's doing. You have an example in Scripture of exactly that. And yet Paul will not say, if Paul will only say perhaps, you better not be like, well, I know. <laughs> right? I, I, I find this, it's just one little verse, but I was reading through this one, one day and I'm like, hold on. Paul is guessing at what God's up to. I guess that means that's okay to do if you do it with humility and restraint. So when people are dogmatic about knowing what God's up to in history, well, they're more confident than Paul. But done the right way, I think it's a, it can be a right thing to do because um, Paul's doing it here and modeling it for us. So great question. Does anyone want to run with that at all? So you can read through human history and you can see things like, oh, or even your own life, how God's setting this up or that up. And I think this is what's going on. We just got to be careful when we speak of it that we, we don't speak with more dogmatism than Paul does. But by all means, if you can speak like this, speak like this. Yes. Does that kind of also go for like, um, you know, like saying, well, God told me to do this. And it's not something really found in scripture, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. some people are yeah. very sure that, you know, God told them something very specific. Right. And it's like sometimes you feel a little sure. hesitant about their confidence. Right. Yeah, I, this is something that deserves clarity. And I know a lot of times when people say the Lord called me, the Lord told me all they mean is um, this has been on my heart. And I think it's from the Lord. I think it'd be more helpful if you said it that way. But if that's what you mean, okay, like if something, somebody's been on your heart, some family member, some person, some things, some ministry, some activity, it's been on your heart, you've been praying about it, this, this, perhaps it's from the Lord, perhaps God's put this person on my heart, you know? Yeah, perhaps, absolutely. The Spirit works by conviction. The Spirit works experientially by conviction. Certainly, if the Spirit's bringing to, to your mind God's Word, you can say, God told me. What do you mean God told you? Well, I remembered it is written, and so God told me. Absolutely. The, the, we run into danger when we say God told... The, the problem with saying God told me, or even I'm being led by God, is it frequently is used to make it impossible for someone to question. And I'm the guy who will question. So some, No, I mean... No, because nine times out of ten, when someone tells me the Lord's leading me and I ask them questions, it really just means I wanted to and I could. And that doesn't mean it's bad, but can we not put God's name on top of it? Hey, I had this desire to do this thing, and then I was able to do this thing. Great. But God's lead. I mean, I feel bad for people like when pastors say, well, the Lord's leading me somewhere else. And well, I guess the Lord's leading him. What can you say? And I'll be like, how did you determine the Lord was leading you? I'm really interested. And nine times out of ten, well, I wanted to. I had this growing desire. 
And then this opportunity opened up. Well, that's great. And Paul can speak in terms of God opening avenues in ministry. I'm not saying that that isn't a valid way of discerning God's will. But if you said it that way, you know, we've had this desire to minister somewhere else. And then this opportunity opened up and it seems to be of the Lord. That's great. But oftentimes I think people just feel like you can't, the Lord's leading me. Well, if the Lord's leading you, I can't say anything. Well, you can, you just got to be careful how you do it. But, but yeah, oftentimes people make a claim that's far greater than what they really mean. I mean, there are some people, especially in charismatic circles, who though they mean God told them. That's another matter. Um, and, uh, but most of the time when people use it in common parlance, they just mean, I have this desire, it's been on my heart, I have this opportunity. And certainly that may well be from the Lord. Paul speaks of that in Acts, not in Acts. What's, where's he talk about the wide open door for ministry in Macedonia? Um, some, can someone with a phone look that up for me? Um, I would do it, but I'd have to stop talking. Um, and I don't want to do that, so... Um, someone could find me that Paul talks about wide open doors. Been open. So I mean, th- these are some valid ways to discern God's will it, partially, right? I mean, it's not as though what's behind it is corrupt necessarily, but when you say God led me, it just sounds so unassailable. It sounds so unquestionable. And sometimes people say, God, the Lord's leading me to do things that are frankly unbiblical. Lord's leading me to leave my wife. No, he's not. No, he, no. No, but I've, I've had people tell me God wants me to be happy, and so I think this is from the Lord. Nope. I can tell you a certainty it ain't. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's uh, we should be really careful what things we sign God's name to um, and, and speak with humility. But Philemon gives us some warrant to say, hey, maybe. 2 Corinthians 2.12. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay. Any other questions on that? Good question. Where'd Matt go? Oh, there he is. Good question, Matt. Now, I can't help but look at things in my life and wonder and see, hey, I think the Lord was preparing me for this thing when this thing happened. I think the Lord was setting me up for this thing with this thing. I think this, absolutely. I think we all look at things that way. And uh, sure, just take the restraint of Philemon. Paul, Paul's like, I write scripture and I'll say perhaps. That's probably a good check. Um, well, no, because you'll see guys like uh, Jerry Fall and stuff talk about he knows what God's doing for America. Just rain it off some, right? Rain, well, more than some. Rain, rain it back a good bit. So um, I feel like that's the danger, like yeah, trying to find why did COVID come and saying well, the world is in need of some change and that's why COVID's here. Right. If you prescribe that, you're going above and beyond. Right. Now, we could look at some of the things God's doing. COVID has certainly caused us. So I hear, let me take COVID as an example. It's clear COVID has caused us to rethink, reevaluate, and reappreciate gathering together as a body. I took for granted gathering until we didn't for four weeks. So can I say the Lord has used COVID to cause his people to reappreciate the church certainly has he's probably done ten thousand other things but they're not saying perhaps like i know he's done that right so god has done that with covid if i said it as though that was the only reason covid came the lord sent covid so that his church would appreciate the church and perhaps twenty thousand other things right the lord sent covid because it's good to remind us that we're dust it's better to go to a funeral house than to go to a wedding feast because in a house of mourning one considers one's ways and so God is kind to send us these 
um, C.S. Lewis would call extreme mercies because they wake us up to the fact that life isn't a bowl of cherries and we're all headed to death. Um, and, and it reminds us that we're not in control. We, who here had plans last year and vacations that didn't happen? Because you're a vapor and you're a wind and you say we'll go here and there if the Lord permits. COVID's reminded us all of that. I've just come up with a number of things that COVID's done that are good for us. And I'm sure God's done 50,000 other things with it. Um, but when you start speaking of main, re- when you start speaking of the main reason, I don't know what the main reason is. Um, C.S. I've been I've been listening to an essays collection by C.S. Lewis, and he's actually talks about this. He has a term for people trying to, various people trying to interpret history, whether they're Marxists. He calls them historists, 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 not historians, historists. The ones who claim to find the meaning in history. And his his point is, we don't know what in a story is a minor plot line and what's a major plot line. We don't know what's setting up. For all we know, World War II happened to bring about the conversion of one person in Africa who's going to do something. We don't know what God's purposes are in the big scheme unless he tells us. Now, we can observe what he's doing and speak to that. COVID is causing us to face our mortality. COVID is causing us to reevaluate what the church is and how we do it. That's true, and that is from the Lord, and those are good things. But to say that's the primary reason COVID came, I don't know. Perhaps, right? So, so that's, that's the type of way I'd frame things in. We can see what God is doing. And when we see good things, we can, God, God's doing that, right? Um, but to know that that's the central or primary thing he's doing. It, I mean, I bet Babylon thought they're a big deal. They didn't realize God raised them up just so that they could. You're, you're the king of Babylon. Why has God raised up Babylon? I need a nation to discipline Israel. That's why. You're a minor player in the story, buddy. You're the bully who's going to knock down Israel before you get cut down. And Nebuchadnezzar just walk around. I'm big stuff. Because he didn't realize the only reason this nation's been raised up is because God needs a more wicked people than his people to discipline his people. But don't worry, he's going to turn around and discipline them. I mean, God's ways are not our ways. So, so does that, am I confusing things more? Or is that making more sense? So, okay. Good, good question. Good question. Anything else on those lines? Anything else from point number one? Okay, then. Let's get to our main discussion, the main event. Here we go. So how many of you, um, and I expect this entirely, I appreciate Dave, I appreciate Dave, your candor, because you're saying what I'm guessing a lot of people are thinking. What Dave said to me before the, uh, um, oh, you, Dave will say it for himself. Give the man a microphone. Give the man a microphone. I want to preface that with, since you mentioned that this morning, mm-hmm. I've talked to a number of highly uh, credentialed people yes, sir. and Tim. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I probably got one of the best answers from yeah. Tim, but everybody seems to be at least confused. Yes. And I'm looking for something simple, and it's probably yep. not that simple. Yep. So the question is, what do you mean regeneration, the new birth, is distinct from and not the same thing as salvation, forgiveness? What, what do you, I, I would assume that we're all talking about the same thing. What are you talking about? Um, yeah, I'm not at all surprised. I expect that to be a question. Um, so here's, here's what we want to do biblically. Um, we don't want to divide things that the Bible puts together, but if, okay, let me, let me use an example. God, 
we talk about God having attributes. And what we mean is there are certain characteristics of God, his patience, his steadfast love, his wrath, his holiness, that the Bible will single out. It's not as though God is made up of composite parts, and here's the holy part, and here's the righteous part, and here's the wrath part. We're talking about a person expressed in actions, in character, but the Bible can separate out an aspect of God's personhood, who he is like, and talk about that. God is just, right? And so we don't want to speak about justice as though it were separated from the person of God. It's a part of God bolted on, but God is just. A helpful analogy might be a diamond with different facets, and you can talk about this facet, you can talk about that facet. You are right, our salvation is a unified whole, absolutely. And the primary way the Bible speaks about it is in that unified sense. Yet I believe there are facets of salvation that are singled out for biblical attention. And in that sense, they are distinct. Okay? So does that make sense? I do agree that our salvation is most often spoken of as a unified whole. But in that sense, our salvation includes justification, forgiveness, sanctification through life, and glorification. And it's why the Bible can talk about you've been saved, you're being saved, you will be saved, because it's big umbrella time, salvation, God's salvation for his people, includes the forgiveness of sins, includes the perseverance through life, includes the glorification at the end. That is the salvation which we have been saved to, it includes an inheritance, it includes adoption, it includes the spirit, it includes so many people. But then the biblical writers can talk about you've received a spirit of adoption. That would be under the umbrella category of our salvation, would be Adoption, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a distinct element of salvation. That's how I want to speak about regeneration as a distinct element of our salvation, separate from faith, separate from justification or forgiveness. Not separate as if one ever occurs without the other, but separate in that we can look at it separately, we can consider it separately. It's not the same thing. That's the distinction I'm trying to talk about. Does that I'm not asking if you agree with me, but does that make sense? Is that coherent? Okay. So from that vantage point, then, the biggest distinction between regeneration, and, and by the way, I think the Bible uses a number of terms to speak about the same thing. I would argue that being born again, being birthed, being, um, what's Titus talk about? Renewal of regeneration, regeneration, having the veil removed having a heart of stone to place the heart of flesh, having ears that hear and eyes that see. All of these, I would argue, are metaphors for the same reality. Um, regeneration. I put them all into the regeneration category. Um, because they all speak to you were inactive, unresponsive, unfeeling, unsent, whether it was blindness or deafness or a stone heart, or you were dead and you were alive. And now you're capable of experience. You're capable of response. You're capable of sight, capable of hearing it. I think all of those are metaphors for the same reality. And what the, what I had to argue, and I argued this morning, is that the Bible makes it clear, insofar as we're looking at that, you did nothing to initiate that. You did nothing to invite that. You did not take part in that except in so much as you were acted upon. You took part in it, as in it was done to you, but you did not, whereas in contrast to that, you and I must believe. No one can believe for us by proxy. No one can believe in our place. You can't believe for your kids. I wish I could, but I can't, I can't have faith for my children. 
you have to believe. And so when we talk about justification, the forgiveness of sins, you and I take a part in that, in that we actively have faith. And then God responds in faith by forgiveness. Again, we're, we're focusing on individual aspects of our salvation. So when we talk about the Reformation, we talk about justification by faith, we're using causal categories. What is the formal cause of our forgiveness? Faith. What's the material cause? Christ's death on the cross. Okay? The basis upon which we're forgiven is Christ's death, but the trigger on the gun by which it's applied to us is faith. What is the, what's the immediate formal cause of justification? Faith. Material cause? Christ's death. And you could talk about another cause, God's purpose and election. But we're distinguishing different elements. You and I take a part in justification insofar as we have faith. And, of, and then I'm saying by contrast, Jesus teaching about the new birth in John 3 is really clear. Man, the wind, how does this happen? <laughs> the wind blows or it wants to blow. You don't know where he's going. You don't know where he's been. You feel him when he blows by. So is everyone born of the Spirit. And I think that is, we are meant to see our non-control over that issue. And I think we're meant to see the same thing here. So if you were to ask me, I, I printed off, in fact, I can print off more copies if you want. I was talking to Jay Popper when he finishes his eight-week ABF, it's not like week 20 now, you know, but when he finishes his, his eight-week ABF, he's going to probably take a break. And we've talked about doing, he's talked about doing an ABF, um, a follow-up series on the Latin. Theologians will throw things into languages to sound smart. The Latin is ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Um, I printed off, anyone want to copy this? I can ask, can somebody go print 20 of these, 30 is off for me? Would somebody who knows how to use the pr printer do that for me? This is from uh, Technology. Um, this is from a really helpful book, Charts of Christian Theology and Doctrine by House. In our Tough Men class, this was one of the books. It's just a helpful visual aid. And um, I got a couple copies here if someone would be so kind. I got three copies here I can hand out. Anyway, wait till the 20 come back. And I'll give you some of the things that the Bible, I think we can, like facets on a diamond, look at. We can look at God's effectual call. Those whom he foreknew, he called, right? So we can talk about calling. We can talk about regeneration or being born again. We can talk about conversion and faith and repentance and forgiveness. We can talk about justification. Paul has a lot to say in that facet alone in the book of Romans, He's really zeroed in. In Romans and Galatians, Paul is zeroed in on justification. Um, sorry, I was going to tell a bad joke, but I won't do that. It's justification. You know, one or two weeks. Justification. No, okay. Okay, I'm done, I promise. Uh, okay. Hey, R.C. Sproul did. I'm just ripping him off, but that's okay. Um Okay, adoption, we can talk, the Bible talks about adoption, which is not the same thing as forgiveness. It comes together with forgiveness as part of a package, but it's distinct from forgiveness. We can talk about adoption without talking about forgiveness. Adoption assumes forgiveness, but they're not the same thing. It's a different facet of the diamond. We talk about sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. So this is their attempt. I, I, I printed off another one I got online from... Um, Tim Challies, if you look up Tim Challies, Ordo Salutis, he's got a nice visual chart that I, I, is in line with what I'd say too, if you want to go online. It's a possible ABF would be going through this one week at a time. And so I just
So what I would say, and this is, I want to be clear here, a logical ordering or a causal ordering. And I want to be careful not to simply fill in gaps with my reasoning and theological gaps with reasoning. But if the Bible speaks causally, I'll speak causally. What I mean by causally is Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Being born again is a necessary precondition to seeing the kingdom. I I think that's validly taken from the text. Cause, effect. Being born again, necessary precondition. It may not be a sufficient precondition, but necessary precondition to see the kingdom or to enter the kingdom, right? So as opposed to time, I don't want you to think, okay, at 301, they were born again. At 302, this happened. But in the same way that when you flip the light switch, immediately the light turns on, but you can still speak of the switch being the cause of the light turning on even though from our experience, they appear simultaneous, we know there's a causal relationship. You get what I mean by causal relationship? This made this happen. I'm arguing that regeneration, the new birth, being born again, having the veil removed, having ears that hear, having eyes that see, having a heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh is the cause. It's what enables us to see, understand, and believe the gospel. We really do see and understand and believe We're not robots. No one's doing it for us. But you can't love what you don't see. You can't listen to what you don't hear. You can't see what you're blinded to. And if you turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 4, I think this type of rationale is borne out in the Apostle Paul's teaching. So in a logical, causal sense, regeneration, being born again, is the cause, not the effect of faith and salvation. And that's what I'm arguing. Let me try to back that claim up. It's, a, it's a, probably a strange claim or something you haven't heard before, but I, I believe it's true. Um, so in 2 Corinthians 4, I got more copies. Thank you, Linda. If you want, anyone else wants a copy, um, you can... Uh, and, and just because House says it doesn't mean it's right, but I think this is a helpful way to look it up. You can look at some of those passages. 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with the word of God. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Then Paul is going to explain what happens when people don't believe his message because he's a missionary. Even if our gospel is veiled. Now, here's a picture of blindness, right? Um, is picking it up from the end of chapter 3, where he talks about the veil lies over their heart, which is why I think, again, it's the heart of stone, having a veil, having ears. We're all talking about the same thing. It's sensory, spiritual sensory deprivation, spiritual sensory deadness, heart of stone, a veil over your heart, right? Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Notice the causal relationship. I'm blinded so I don't see something. Flip it over. If I'm unblinded, I do see something. So the cause and effect is sight. The God of this world doesn't want me seeing something. What does he not want me to see? To keep unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel the glory of Christ. Veil is in place to stop them from seeing the gospel as glorious and beautiful. So you can explain the gospel to an unbeliever and they're not interested. They're bored. They're offended. They think it's stupid. 
Is it because we have a stupid gospel? Is it because Christ isn't glorious? No, they're not seeing it rightly. No, they're not understanding it properly. The problem is not a defect in what we present. It's a defect in the hearer. And it's a veil over their heart. And the causality, again, the veil stops them from seeing. And if you think it through, you're not going to love, you're not going to embrace, you're not going to believe in what you don't see as beautiful, glorious, and lovely. So again, this is why I'm arguing. This blindness is the cause of unbelief. They don't believe in what they don't see as beautiful, right? So just trying to get causality here, okay? To see them, seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of dark. Now get this. The solution to this problem of blindness is like Genesis 1, where God at nobody's instigation and at nobody's request, at nobody's suggestion, in response to nothing but his good pleasure, said, let there be light. That's like how God solved your blindness. You get what I'm talking about? God did it on his own. It wasn't a collaborative effort. But God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can't even see the kingdom, let alone enter it unless you're born again. You won't see the gospel as glorious and beautiful unless you have eyes to see. And so the analogy I use is you're walking around as an unbeliever with this veil over your face and people can come with God's word, people can come with the gospel and all you see through that veil is something ugly, something unattractive, something uninteresting and then one day the Holy Spirit rips the veil back and you see and no one makes you. You are captivated by the loveliness of Christ. You are enthralled by him. You, you want Christ and you freely, gladly, no one making you, you embrace him by faith and trust him and you're saved. And, be, and based on that faith, God says, justified. But you only believed in what you saw because the veil was removed. That's what I'm talking about. In a, in, it's all part of one salvation, but I think passages like this can zero in on aspects of it. And again, what's it like when God speaks light into a darkened heart? It's like Genesis 1 where God said, let there be light. It wasn't him responding to anyone or anything. That's what I'm talking about. So let me, let me put it to you another way. If you, don't, if you don't believe this, you will end up with smart or good people going to heaven. Because if I evangelize two men on a park bench, and one of them, same, same gospel presentation, and one of them repents and believes, trusts in Christ, bows his knee to the Lord, is saved, and one of them says, nah. What made the difference? Now, if you say free will... You've only sidestepped it. I say, okay, but isn't it have to be that the man who believed either understood the goodness of the news better than the one next to him, which makes him smarter, or loved his sin a little less. He wanted forgiveness. He, the other guy was like, I want to keep partying and drinking and doing my thing. The other guy's a little less. He's a little better. You fill heaven with the smart, good people and hell with the bad, dumb people. Why would someone love what they don't love? Why would... Go to John 3 again. We'll go back to John 3. Um, Mitchell's sermon from, from a few weeks, months ago. John 3. Mitchell and I talked a lot about this passage in John 3.19. And I think he's right when he said that really John 3, 
19 through 21 is the conclusion of the Nicodemus encounter. It's the explanation of the Nicodemus encounter. The Nicodemus encounter actually gets introduced at the end of chapter 2. I think the chapter division was poorly placed. If you re- read from 2.23 right into 3, and 2.23 introduces Nicodemus perfectly. If I'm right then, that means this story of Nicodemus has an introduction and an epilogue. It has a conclusion. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That should surprise us. Because chapter 1, verse 13 has already said, to as many as did believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. So Jesus, why didn't you do that here? Wait and see. I mean, I think John anticipates us going, wait, what? Many believed in his name, but Jesus, on his part, did not trust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew it was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. Notice that flows right in. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless Jesus is with him. 2.23, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Oh, look, here's a man who believed something because he saw some signs. Nicodemus, I think, this is setting up Nicodemus. Let me show you why it is Jesus might reject someone who believes something about his name because his faith simply comes from seeing signs. Nicodemus, this is the setup. Nicodemus is the poster child for this. And so that's when we get into basically... I'm trying not to just spend the entire time teaching John 3. My reading of this is Nicodemus comes at night not because he's a secret tentative believer, but because he's come to size up Jesus and the Pharisees don't want to be publicly seen taking a side yet. Again, let the end of chapter 2 inform you. Jesus doesn't need anyone to testify about him. What's the implication? The Pharisees might advocate Jesus. They might endorse him. They might get banners with Jesus on it. They send Nicodemus to check him out, but they don't want to commit yet. So Nicodemus comes at night. Another reason why we know this is Nicodemus says we, and halfway through Jesus' response, he starts speaking in plural yous, you alls. Nicodemus comes representing a group, he speaks as representing a group, and Jesus answers him as representing a group. And so this is not, he, he becomes a believer. He's not one here. He's not even a seeker here. This is just like the people sent by the Jews to interrogate John the Baptist. By what basis do you baptize? That's what's going on. And so Jesus, I think, if you've ever wondered, why is Jesus kind of rude here? He's not kind of rude, but have you ever wondered, like, someone comes like, hey, teacher, no one can be do the signs to you. You must be born again. What's going on? I believe Jesus is fundamentally rejecting Nicodemus's right to evaluate and size him up. In essence, Nicodemus, what makes you think you'd know truth if you saw it? Who are you to judge me? Who, who, what makes you think you'd even know truth? You can see truth. You can't even see unless you're born again. Nicodemus, I reject your ability to judge me and evaluate me. I think that's what's going on. And then he further presses Nicodemus on his inability, his his helplessness before God. How can I climb back in the womb? You can't. The Spirit does what the Spirit wants to do, just like the wind. And then speak in plural use my ESP marks footnote, starting verse 11 and through 15. All use are y'all's. Truly, truly, I say to you all, we speak of what we know and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you all do not receive our testimony, you all Pharisees. 
If I have told you all earthly things and you all do not believe, how can you all believe if I tell you all heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he, he goes on. So, so there, there's the conclusion. Then we get the summary. And so this is a long, big setup. Is the judgment. Light come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Question, how many people do wicked things? Everyone. So based on verse 20, how many people come to the light? Then how do we explain people coming to the light? The new birth. The gospel is about not just what you believe and think is credible, but it's about what you love and what you hate. Do you love your sin? Do you hate your sin? Do you love Jesus? Do you hate Jesus? Do you love the light? Do you love the darkness? And John 3 frames it in those loving categories. How do people who love darkness stop loving darkness and start loving light? How? It's, it's, you must be born again. That's Jesus' point. So anyone who wants Jesus can have Jesus. Anyone who finds him attractive, anyone who wants him and finds him beautiful can have him. There's no invisible barrier stopping anyone from coming to Christ. But passages like this make it clear. If you remain in your deadness and in your sin, you will hate him and despise him and find him repulsive. You will love the light like cockroaches love the light, and you'll run away. This is to explain Nicodemus. Why would Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, reject, Je reject Jesus? Why would the Pharisees reject Jesus? Because darkness hates the light. That's why. You must be born again. You've got to have an inward change of your affections. You've got to have an adjustment of your sight and your hearing before you can ever see Jesus rightly and respond rightly. So in that causal sense, that's how I think regeneration fits in. It's the Jeremy Kidder... 1999 underwent severe conviction of sin and all of a sudden the things that i'd formerly loved my drunkenness my carousing my partying all of that i began to be convicted of and all of a sudden things that i had never cared about before started becoming appealing to me there was a change in my heart my affections my desires altered and then i freely i absolutely freely chose christ and i could do no other <laughs> it's if I have the world's most beautiful picture, the world's most beautiful song, how can you not but love it? But no one's making you love it. It's lovely. What stops you from seeing Jesus as lovely is your blindness, your deadness, your sinfulness. And, and God changes the heart. God opens the veil. He gives eyes to see. And I think that's what James is saying. Of his own will, he birthed you and I. Now, that doesn't mean we didn't believe. That doesn't mean we didn't participate in faith. We did that. But know that you didn't believe because you were smart enough to figure it out or good enough to figure it out. The credit goes to God so that no one can boast. No one. Okay, that's a long diatribe. We've got 10 minutes. Questions, Dave, or anyone else? That's, that's an explanation of how I think it fits together, what I'm trying to say. We're looking at facets of the diamond. Yes. Oh, no, Mike, Mike. My name's Janine, by Janine. the way. Janine. Yeah. I will forget that within 10 minutes, but I'll <laughs> remember okay. it right now. Janine? Okay, so my question is, in light of all that you shared, what is what is an efficacious prayer that we should pray for those we care about um, for salvation? A lot of times we just say, pray that this person gets saved. Or Sure. And I, and I think God can work with those prayers. I think biblically we have modeled far... I, was, I just finished teaching through Ephesians, and I was 
floored at the specificity in Paul's prayers. That God might, um, hold on a second, where does it go? It's Acts, to open the eyes of the Gentiles and turn them to God. Oh, from dark. Fifteen points. What was the reference? Twenty-five points. You get a cup of coffee, but fifteen points. Uh, but no. So that would be one. Lord, would you? I, I just would piggyback off of Second Corinthians four. Lord, would you speak light into their darkened heart? Lord, would you show them the beauty of Christ? Would you give them ears to hear? Lord, would you take your seed of your word and plant it in their hearts? Lord, would you speak life and light to a dead heart? Would you give them a heart of flesh? Lord, would you cause them to see Christ as he truly is? Those, those were the ways I'd be praying. Things like that. Go, go to Ephesians um, 3. And I think the Lord, the Lord knows our weakness. He knows we're dust. Say, Lord, save them. He knows what to do. But we do have modeled for us in Scripture far greater specificity in prayers. Go to Ephesians 3 um, and see Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. Paul is not just saying, Lord, bless them. He is really specific in how he wants them to bless them. And, and so I, I think it's good for us to learn from this example. Ephesians 3, 14 and following. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth was named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the fullness of God. That's really specific. So, by all means, Lord, save them. Great. You want to speak? What I, what I want to do, what I try to do, is I try to speak God's word back to him. I and mean, you see this a lot in Scripture. People almost like reminding God of what he said. You know? And what it's doing is we're claiming, his, we're trusting in his promises. Lord, you said you delight in saving. You've said it's your pleasure to be a savior. Lord, would you be a savior to my son? Would you open his eyes? Lord, you, you say that you love to help the poor and the weak and the afflicted. You delight in saving the shameful and the, the, not, the, the foolish to shame the wise. Would you do that with my kids? Would you do it with my neighbor? Would you, you know? And one of the things I'd say is that believing that God is sovereign over salvation, we can actually pray for the salvation of others. If I didn't believe God was sovereign, the most I could pray is, Lord, help my son make an informed decision. That's the most I could pray. If God wasn't sovereign over salvation, all I could say is, let Abner make a fully informed decision with no misunderstandings. Let, let him do what he wants. I say, Lord, save my son. You know, That's how I pray. I don't pray that way. I think he's got a great little book, um, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And he starts by assuming everyone on their knees believes in the sovereignty of God. Everyone on their knees says, Lord, save their loved ones. Okay, then how do we evangelize in light of that? Does, because the classic argument is, well, if God's sovereign, why evangelize? Well, Packer's book works that way. If we start with the assumption, yeah, God saves. Then how do we, how do we evangelize? How do we share our faith? Uh, really helpful little book. We are at time. I can stick around. Oh, we got five minutes. We got five minutes. More questions on this? Dave. He did. Uh, <laughs> if, I don't know if you can put this in a nutshell or not, but I'm kind of comparing it 
and I'm still studying this, no conclusions, yep. the cross-resurrection event and the regeneration-saved event. The cross doesn't technically save anybody. A lot of people went to the cross. Yes. Okay, but the cross-resurrection event means something. When one person uh, was resurrected. Now, does it make sense to say born again is a step, or I cross that up and put born again is the step to be saved? So it's the born again saved event. You can't really separate them. Sure. No, no. And I'd say if you use the, if you use the language of John 3, we cannot detect the new birth apart from someone coming to faith. The wind blows by and you feel it. How do I know the spirits birthed someone? Because they believed in Jesus. Someone believes in Jesus. The spirit just blew by and birthed life. How do you know? Well, they, they believed in Jesus. That's how I know. Um, it's like saying when the lights turn on. Somebody flipped a switch somewhere. How do you know? Well, the light turned on. So this, someone had to flip the switch somewhere. So it, I would say read the new birth is a necessary precondition and cause of salvation. But the Bible is explicitly clear. Justification is based on faith. And we don't preach the gospel and say, be born again and be saved. We say, believe. What I know is those who believe have been born of God. That, that's what I know. So the gospel is not be born again and be saved. In the same way, the preached word or the word, not the word preached word. It could be the word. The gospel message audibly written in cuneiform, in a vision. I don't care. The gospel is the necessary precondition for salvation, right? How will they... Believe in whom they've not heard. Necessary precondition. There can be no salvation without a gospel message. Yes? No? I'm just quoting Romans. You can nod. So the gospel message is a necessary precondition. There will be no salvation apart from the gospel message, whether it's written, delivered by an angel, whether it's in a dream, whether it's in a book, whether it's heard, whether it's written in the sand. I don't care. Without the, without the gospel message, there's no new birth. I'd also say the new birth is a necessary precondition. The gospel is not be born again. The gospel is believe and be saved. And everyone who believes will be saved. And everyone who wants Jesus can have Jesus. The Bible also makes it clear, hey, when they come to faith, it's because the Spirit birthed them. It's because God said light in their heart. It's because God brought them forth by his word of his own will. That's after the fact what I'm saying. So don't go out and change how you evangelize. But I think God does want us to be in awe and wonder at his glory and goodness. And he wants the credit for the new birth. He wants the glory. We get the benefit, he gets the glory. And he wants you to take comfort in his goodness and not doubt his goodness by recognizing that while you were dead in your sins and trespasses, he made you alive with Christ. It's Ephesians 2. While you were dead, he made you alive. He brought us forth by the word of truth to be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Anyway, we're at time. God bless you. I'll stick around for a few more minutes. The chat's further, but thank you all. Have a good day.